Why do you do what you do? <laughs> it's kind of a, a broad, general question, isn't it? But everyone has various reasons for living the way that they live. When you get up in the morning, what is it that compels you to do the things you do that day? To be a good parent, uh, to be a good employee, a good student. What is the driving force behind you wanting to live a good life at all? Now, maybe we don't consciously think like that every day. Every morning when our feet hit the ground, we're not necessarily uh, reciting that thought aloud. But there's something behind the scenes that gives us the sense of purpose in the way that we go about living our daily lives. Well, here in the second chapter of Paul's letter to this man named Titus, who lived on an island called Crete, the Apostle Paul gives Titus a foundational reason for living a certain way. In verse 11 of Titus 2, after giving a specific list of instructions to Titus and to different groups of Cretan Christians on how to live, Paul uses this word, for. Now the word for is the because to the question of why. It points to the answer to the question that I just asked of all of us. Why do we do what we do? Whether you're an older man or an older woman, a younger man or a younger woman, in either the position of a master or a slave, what we would think of today as employer or employee, if you are a Christian, Paul says that the primary motivating factor for your godly living is this, the grace of God in your life. If you call yourself a Christian, I hope that you could say that rings true for you today. Our text for this morning is Titus 2, uh, but beginning down at verse 11. Perhaps it would be helpful to consider briefly, though, what Paul, uh, why Paul left Titus in Crete in the first place. Look with me back here at chapter 1, uh, even beginning of verse 5, where Paul explains this quite plainly for us. This is why. This is why, Titus, I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so this was Titus's task, to find men who fit the specific description, the qualifications that Paul gave for elders in verses 6 through 10, and then to appoint them as elders in the churches across the island of Crete. But that's not all. Titus was also to be on the lookout not just for a few good men, but also on guard against the many bad ones that were there in Crete. And there were many there. Paul writes about them in verses 10 and following of chapter 1. They were teaching things that they shouldn't have been teaching. They were doing so for shameful personal gain, Paul says. And in the process, they were upsetting entire families. They were causing quite the disruption on the island. So Paul told Titus to hold on to and teach sound doctrine, but also to call out the bad doctrine and rebuke sharply the immoral men teaching that bad doctrine so that they might be shut up and ultimately silenced. Well, then as chapter 2 opens, Paul says, but as for you, Titus, and by extension, he's speaking to the other believers there and here today as well, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And live accordingly. 
As one commentator, Towner, summarizes, the following instructions given to Titus and the Cretan Christians are given in direct contrast to the description of the false teachers and the immoral culture mentioned in chapter 1. What we find in the following verses, then, are Paul's instructions to Titus to instruct the rest of the churches there in Crete regarding how the church should properly function within that sinful generation. It's like Paul saying, here are some healthy practices for Christians to live out. And he begins with instructions for godly leaders to teach sound doctrine. But then also for members to receive that doctrine and to uh, reinforce it with godly living uh, among each other. Paul gives detailed instructions for all types of people that make up the church, as our brother just read. There's an implied message behind these instructions also. A message that flows beneath the surface of what Paul is saying. And that says, if you believe these things to be true, then your behavior should reflect that. In other words, you say you love Jesus, then act like it. (laughs) And and part of the reason this was so important for Titus and the Christians in Crete was because of the context and where they lived. As Paul explains in chapter 1, verse 10 and following, there were many on the island who claimed to be religious, but they were more like John Bunyan's character, talkative, who knew enough Bible verses, uh, he could regurgitate enough true sayings, Maybe he even knew the confession. (laughs) He could make himself sound genuine, but in the end, as Christian knew, he only beguiled with his tongue. Christian had to warn his friend that while talkative sounded good, he was nothing more than a hypocrite, just like the Pharisees who preached but did not practice. So Paul here, he's emphasizing to the to the church there in Crete, the necessity of not looking like the godless leaders or or islanders around them, but to live out their true faith with true fruit. Then it's not until way down at the bottom of chapter 2 that Paul gets to the foundational reason that answers the question, why? And this brings us to our text, beginning at verse 11. And this morning I want us to notice three things from verses 11 through 14. First, the appearing of God's saving grace. The appearing of his saving grace. Secondly, the training of his sanctifying grace. And thirdly, the waiting for God's future glory. It's interesting to note here how Paul reverses the typical order of his writing. I don't know if you've noticed that, but in his other letters like Romans or Galatians or Ephesians, Paul begins with the heavy doctrine first. He, he kind of front loads the, the letter with the foundation for the practical imperatives that he would later mention. However, here in his letter to Titus, Uh, Paul kind of mixes it up for us. He reverses the order of the indicative, then imperative, and he begins with the exhortations to godly living before he gets to the real reason behind those exhortations. Notice verse 10 where Paul wants slaves to submit to their masters and show good faith, quote, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then Paul goes into the therefore. He says for or because Here in reversed order, he gives the reason for the instruction that he's already laid out. And what is the reason? That Christians are to live this certain way in simplest terms because of God's grace. Our first point this morning is the appearing 
of God's grace. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As Christians, we talk a lot about grace, don't we? And for good reason. We read all about it in our Bibles. We sing about it and how amazing it is in our songs. We pray for it in our petitions. Some of us even name our churches after grace. And remember what grace is? It is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. It's a gift that none of us deserve, and yet it's given freely, without condition. Okay, but what does Paul mean when he says that the grace of God has appeared? I think the answer could be summed up in in one word. It's that children's Sunday school answer, Jesus. The appearing of God's grace happened when the Son of God and God of grace himself took on flesh and came to this sin-cursed earth as a human child, as a son of man. Isn't that what John was saying in John 1.14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the physical embodiment, the visual, tangible expression of God's grace toward sinners. So in the incarnation of Christ, God made his appearance to man in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. God made visible for us, condescending to us so that we can see and touch and feel. I mean, that statement alone that Christ is the image of the invisible God is is somewhat mind-blowing, I think. How can that which is invisible and infinite, uh, how couldn't that assume flesh and bones and possess bodily form and a bodily presence in time and space when God is other than and still be fully divine? But our Bibles teach it, doesn't it? Don't they? Our confession, too, speaks to this reality in chapter 8, paragraph 2. It says that uh, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. And if you want to know more about that in chapter 8 of our confession, the preeminence of Christ will be the theme at our Building Tomorrow's Church Conference in Gilbert next June. I had to throw that out there. We'll be exploring some of these, can we call them strange ideas, about the two natures of our Lord there uh, next June. But Colossians 1 goes on to say in verse 19 that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, mind-blowing. But this is precisely why he is called Emmanuel. Because God is with us. He is very God of very God and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary as we confess in our creed. And only through the appearance of the incarnate Son of God Poor sinners like us can experience the love and mercy and saving grace of God that has appeared. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, Paul further explains that we're not saved by works, but by God's grace, which he says has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that sounds similar to what we read here in Titus 2, 11. And while we talk about the appearance of God's grace in one sense as synonymous with the incarnation and and Christ's coming to earth, uh, 
In another sense, I hope that we can talk about it even in a more personal way. For each of us who've been chosen uh, by God and regenerated by His Spirit, that grace of God has truly appeared to us only through the person of Jesus so that we can apply this to ourselves and say, the grace of God has appeared to me. And even the word choice here, appeared, it, it connotes a suddenness. There's a suddenness to Christ's appearing, not only back then when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, but also any time grace appears to a sinner. As sinners, we, don't, we didn't go around looking for Jesus. We were content to live in our rebellion against him. And yet by grace, he appeared to us suddenly uh, by his spirit. He's appeared to us bringing salvation even when we weren't looking for it. And it wasn't just for you and for me that salvation has appeared through Christ, but we're told it was for all people. Clearly by the context, Paul's referencing all of those different types of people that he spoke of in the previous verses. Paul is teaching that the grace of God does not discriminate between gender or age or ethnicity or social class or anything else. God's sovereign grace is freely gifted to whomever God wills. Revelation 5.9, Christ came to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation, praise God. God's grace is for all people and he sovereignly chooses uh, to dispense it as he wills. And we see this in light of the context in Titus 2. Paul just concluded with a list of exhortations to all types of people. He's not just speaking to the men. He's not just speaking to the women. Not just to the older or younger, the lay person. Not just to the Jews or uh, not just to the free man. Paul was addressing all kinds of people here in the immediate context just above where we get to uh, this grace appearing. And so, naturally, he references back to these all people because of that context. And what has the appearing of God's grace in the person of Jesus done for all the recipients of that divine grace? Well, down in verse 14, if you look there with me, Paul tells us that it's done two things. It has redeemed us from lawlessness, and it has purified us or set us apart as a people of God's own possession. Now listen to that language. Though, uh, through Jesus, we are redeemed, we're told. And that's the language of the Old Testament. If we go back to uh, the earlier dealings of God with his uh, people, the nation of Israel, that's how he speaks, that God redeemed his people from captivity. Listen to how he spoke to Moses in Exodus 6. I am the Lord, he says, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And listen, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you, he says, to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." And just as God worked through Moses then to lead his people out of bondage to slavery there in Egypt and eventually lead them to the promised land, so too God works through Jesus, who we're told is the greater Moses, to redeem all sinners from their spiritual captivity. 
Christ, we're told in Galatians 3.13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our divine liberator, Jesus, delivered us from bondage to lawlessness, to iniquity. Uh, Paul's essentially saying that here in Titus 2.14, that God redeems from all lawlessness through the means of his son, Jesus, who gave himself for this very purpose. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we read that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and then transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, there's this word again, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And since Christ redeemed us from our captivity to lawlessness, we now belong to him. He has a a claim upon us as a people who are his. Our salvation is all from him and that we might live lives all for him. Having considered this appearing of God's saving grace, it brings us to see secondly the second action of God's grace in verse 12 of Titus 2, the training of God's sanctifying grace. We could say that God's grace is kind of that gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? It not only frees sinners from the power of reigning sin in their lives, but it continues to be given by God through his spirit so that even after we have been saved, we are further and further empowered, enlivened, fueled each day to live holy lives. I think we just confessed something like that this morning in our confession. Now, if, is there anyone here who, who would say when offered more of God's grace, you know, I think I'm good. <laughs> I, to the brim, I've, I've, had, I've had enough. I'm full. No. No one says no to more of God's grace, just like no one says more to extra helpings of mom's spaghetti or Amy's spaghetti. Uh, you take all that you can get when God is dispensing his grace. Truly, my friends, we're living in that space in between God's, uh, the appearing of God's grace and his second coming, his coming glory. And that's our life right there, uh, between grace and glory. And Paul points to this in-between time as almost like a school, uh, an academy of grace. Donald Guthrie says that grace is here almost personified in its task of educating us in the art of living. I love that. Grace is educating us how to live. It's an art, (laughs) It serves to guide us in the ways of holiness, doesn't it? It not only appeared to save us once back then whenever we were saved, but it's given continually by God to train us and to mold us and fashion us more into Christ's likeness. So the question you need to ask yourselves, we all need to ask ourselves today is this, are we enrolled in this school of grace? Calvin comments that Paul means that it ought to hold the place of instruction to us to regulate our life well. The manifestation of the grace of God, Calvin writes, unavoidably carries along with it exhortations to a holy life. Now this is key, especially since there are so many who have thought of the saving grace of God as some kind of license to live however they please. Uh, But that's a false view of God's grace. You see, you can't have the gospel indicative without the gospel imperatives. 
Does that make sense? The same God of grace that saves us is the one who demands that we subject all of our lives to doing his will. If you've been around a while, you've probably known Christians who have stood there in church for years, perhaps, and sing aloud with the congregation, it is well with my soul on Sunday mornings. But then, after service is done, they go and live the rest of the week like it is not well with their souls. Uh, It makes you wonder, how? How can you sing? It is well with my soul. In fact, maybe you shouldn't. Our Baptist Confession speaks to this doctrine of good works. It calls these good works the fruits and evidences of a lively faith. So there should be something visible there if you call yourself a Christian. And this is exactly the problem that Paul was seeking to help Titus address in Crete. Again, at verse 16 of chapter 1, uh, it says that there were false teachers who they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works, by the way that they lived. Their life and their profession, it, it didn't line up. Their lives were not regulated by grace because they were probably never recipients of saving grace in the first place. And so this is why Paul emphasizes to Titus in verse 7, show your, yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, Titus. He told Timothy basically the same, t- same thing in 1 Timothy 4, as Christians and especially Titus and Timothy as the leaders of the church, grace should be training all of our lives so that our words and our actions, they line up with our profession to know God. Paul explains how this takes place in our text here. God's sanctifying grace works within those he's already saved. It trains us to renounce the ungodliness and the worldly passions that exist uh, within us and around us. Uh, God's grace has this purifying effect upon our lives. It not only washed us once, it, it has, but it continues to cleanse us from all sin as we read in John, uh, 1 John 1.7. And so grace teaches us to to just say no to ungodliness and those worldly pressures that push against us. Uh, We've all heard the phrase, but for the grace of God, go I. Uh, There's some good theology there, isn't there? Apart from that sanctifying grace of God currently at work in a believer's uh, life, who knows where we would end up? Uh, If you're a Christian, I hope that you can see and, and sense that training grace at work in your life. We see examples of it in Scripture. We can look back at the lives of Old Testament saints. Wasn't it God's grace that motivated, that sped the feet of Joseph as he fled from the temptation of sleeping with Potiphar's wicked wife? Wasn't it God's grace, his restraining grace that held back David's hand from killing a sleeping King Saul with the spear when he had a chance? Wasn't it God's grace that kept Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from bowing down to an idol when everyone else around them was? And isn't it that same grace of God still at work in his people's lives today that trains us to say no when tempted to sin? 
You see, God's grace, his sanctifying grace, it both keeps us from doing that which is wrong, and at the same time, it enables us to do that which is right. Have you ever thought about that? Again, what motivates you to live the way you do? That's kind of our key question today, isn't it? What prompts you and provokes you to pursue holiness day in and day out? And for the believer, the answer should be the same for all of us every day. It is the grace of God. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's willed it for all he has saved. Well, Paul gets more specific and he names three effects here of the training grace of God in our lives. It causes us to be self-controlled, to be upright or just, and it trains us to be godly. That's the effects. These are the effects. As George Knight observes, these three adverbs line up nicely with one's relationship to himself first, self-control, to others, justice, and then to God, godliness. First, Paul mentions self-control. Here, the apostle places an emphasis, it seems, on this virtue. If you scroll up uh, the page, you can see in the earlier part of chapter 2 that self-control is mentioned more than a couple times. He gives instructions for each uh, people group in the church to be self-controlled. Why is that such a command here for Paul to give Titus to give to the people of Crete? Well, because it flies in direct contrast to the world around them and around us. There were certain, this was true for those living there, but it's also uh, true for us. How many of us were nodding along as uh, we heard the word read from chapter 1 about the Cretans being referred to in well-known sayings as liars and beasts and uh, evildoers and lazy gluttons and night comments. Again, the excessive and uncontrollable appetites of the Cretans were widely known by the ancients. The people of Crete had a reputation for being barbaric in their behavior. In fact, being an island that Crete was, it became the home for many mercenaries and pirates who exercised, this is night again, quote, exercised no trace of self-control, gentleness, or uprightness, and who would do anything to turn a profit. How many of us listen to that and uh, think, well, that doesn't sound too much different than where we live today? Exactly. There's not much new under the sun, as it's been said. We all need God's grace to train us to live self-controlled lives as the fruit of the Spirit uh, should help us to do. Uh, Secondly, Paul mentions living upright lives. And the aim here of Paul's charge in these verses is both inward and outward. It's controlling ourselves as well as living justly with those around us, living uprightly, obeying the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors. But still, even there, we need God's grace to help us. And thirdly, we're to pursue godly lives. This, that is, we're not just to seek right relationships with our neighbors. We're not just to control ourselves, but we must remember the first and greatest commandment to love God with all that we have. It's one thing to say, no to temptation and sin, but it's another thing to say yes to righteous living. And that's what God has called us to do. Paul continues to add that grace, the grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here he's reminding us of our placement between saving grace and coming glory. The present age to which Paul refers, it just means whichever age you're presently living in. 
And it isn't, and, and isn't it good to know that no matter um, what age or epoch you might find yourself, uh, God is continually dispensing and supplying His grace to help believers live wherever and whenever they are. But maybe you're wondering, okay, so how do we get this grace of God? I like the idea. I like the idea, David, of more grace. I'm, I'm with you there. How do we get it? <laughs> well, God dispenses his grace to us spiritually by the Spirit of Christ working sanctifyingly in us. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ sanctifies us by, the washing, us, by washing us with the Word. So his Word has something to do with it then. Okay. Our confession is helpful here, I think. Again, in chapter 14, in paragraph 1, it explains that grace is, quote, the work of the Spirit of Christ and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, as well as by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed by God. So through these ordained channels of God, like preaching or taking the Supper, God gives us more of His grace And our faith, we're told, is increased and strengthened. Uh, That's why we call these things the means of grace. So how do you get more of God's grace? Well, continue doing what you did this morning to get here. Keep coming to worship each week and sitting under and participating in the means of grace that God has given us. And he's promised to supply more and more of it to us when we are present So we see how God's grace is like a school teacher. It instructs our minds with truth. It's like a parent who corrects and disciplines as needed. Sometimes it might even feel like an army drill sergeant, uh, training us for battle so that we might live holy lives in this present dark age. But however God's grace is training us at any given moment, we can take comfort knowing that God didn't just save us once upon a time way back then and then leave us to figure out the rest until he shows up again at the end of time. No, Christ promised that he is with us by his spirit even to the end of the age. And he'll continue to sanctify us by his grace for as long as we live. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. The waiting for God's future glory. In verse 13 we read, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The waiting for the glorious reappearing of our God and Savior at his second coming. It's not a passive, lazy, kick up your feet on the couch, watch Netflix or scroll on your social media kind of waiting around. No, it's a time to be busy. Uh, We wait with anxious uh, expectation that is demonstrated outwardly through the actions and, and activities of our lives. I've heard people say, oh, I'm just waiting for the Lord to, uh, to make this or that happen. And, and, and maybe there, that makes sense in a certain context, but I think oftentimes it's used as a way to um, sound pious uh, while doing nothing. <laughs> it's less like waiting for a bus to come to your stop and more like waiting for a baby to arrive. That's the kind of expectation that we have here. And, and allow me to further my case, if you would, Your Honor. Uh, my wife and I right now are expecting our fourth child. And as many of you probably know, the nine months, ten months of, of pregnancy can often be a very busy time 
for uh, the mom as well as the dad and the family expecting to soon hold that baby. Over the last few weeks and months, we've been working on an extended project inside our home. Uh, It's included but not limited to cleaning out every closet, every cabinet, every room of our house. Uh, We haven't got to the attic yet, but I'm sure that's next. It's the decluttering process that some have referred to as nesting. We've only nested a few times now, but the clock is ticking. Our family dynamic will be changing once again soon. We know it's coming. We'll be adding someone new to our household and uh, lots to do between now and then. Uh, Our house feels sometimes like a crazy, uh, constant buzz of activity and mess right now. But it's because we are busy waiting. We are busy waiting. And I know we know that things won't remain the way they are for much longer. I hope that kind of begins to illustrate what Paul is trying to get across when he talks about waiting for the glory of Christ's return. The life of every individual believer who confesses, as we just did, that uh, or as we do, that Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. They should be busy waiting. And I hope you believe that, that he is coming again. If you do, are you busy (laughs) waiting for his second coming? In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. And Jesus communicates there the importance of working while we wait. We're to use the gifts and the, the resources that he's given, both spiritually and otherwise, to not earn God's favor. That's impossible, right? But to... Do the things that he's called us to do, namely to be faithful with what he's given us. In fact, even right here in Titus 2.14, Paul reminds us that Christ came to take a people who are zealous for good works. I love that word zealous. That's a great word, isn't it? We're to be excited, enthusiastic, and full of zeal about our obedience to God. Jesus said in John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we love Jesus, we should be active and wholeheartedly devoted to doing even the ordinary things of a disciple, whatever he's called us to do. And this isn't legalism. Let's be straight about that. This isn't legalism to say that we're to do certain things according to the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel of grace in a person's life. Preaching from Titus 2, the Puritan Thomas Manton once said, Christ died to improve piety not to lessen it but to raise it to the highest to make us zealous of good works that we might be carried on to heaven with full sails and i don't know about you but i want to cruise into heaven with my sails full of the grace of god and busy at work for him my friends this present world has an expiration date and i think it's coming sooner rather than later christ will return Just as this text shows us. And make no mistake, there's a warning implied here. The Lord's second coming will be very different than his first. In his first appearing, Jesus' glory was veiled, wasn't it? By flesh. And he brought grace as a lowly servant who suffered and died for sinners. But in his next appearance, our Lord's divine majesty will be on Full display. It will in no way be hidden, but brightly visible to all creation. And there will be no mistaking it when that day arrives. When Christ appears again, he will no longer be dispensing God's grace. When the glory comes, 
the grace will have ended. This means that anyone who has not already known the God of all grace will only know the God of all glory. And that is the God who is completely glorified in his eternal power and justice and holiness and wrath towards sin. So for those who do not bow the knee to Christ and receive his grace by faith now, they are only delaying a dreadful judgment. What about you? Does that second coming of Christ in glory, does it excite you and make you zealous toward good deeds as you await your blessed hope? Or does it frighten you? Does it terrify you knowing that on that day there will be nowhere left to hide as he who is the light of the world will return in absolute splendor and the glory of his holy radiance will shine right through all of us, showing us who we are or whose we are. When that day comes, the time for grace will be no more. If you have not put your faith in Christ, who is both God and Savior, I exhort you today, I plead with you not to wait one more moment. But for those of us who are believers already, by grace, we await what Paul calls a blessed hope in Christ's second appearing. As pilgrims, we plod our way through this life, and we might have many hopes and dreams and good goals and desires that arise both for ourselves and for others, but none of them are certain or blessed in the way that the second appearing of Christ is for us. When Scripture talks about our eternal hope, it's something that is rooted in the very unchanging nature of God. As Paul opens his letter to Titus, he mentions this in verse, or chapter 1, verse 2. He says, This hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So this hope of heaven isn't just a pipe dream or an item on our wish list. No, God has promised this hope to us. Therefore, we can rest secure knowing it is true. Not only is the second appearing of Christ a future certainty, but it's a happy one. It's called a blessed hope by Paul. And what could be more blessed than uh, for the one who's been bought already with that price, who has had their ransom paid, who has been fully redeemed, to then be invited into the glory of the one who has done all those things for them freely by grace. And maybe there are some of you today uh, who have walked with our Lord for a long time. And perhaps after all these years of training in grace and being taught by the educating nature of sanctifying grace, there might be a part of you that feels a little tired. Part of you, though, is still giddy when you think about what's still to come. You feel that? Sometimes in the last few months of high school, uh, teachers would warn their 12th graders Uh, There are senior students about this thing called senioritis. Um, It's that excitement that accompanies that thought of finally being done with high school and moving on to what's next. And I tend to think that all Christians should live with at least a little senioritis. I think we should redeem that word as Christians. We know that our graduation is coming. In fact, we're assured of that happy thought, that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of Christ. Well, as we close, it was Manton who once wrote that true grace is a fire that warms and inflames our affections. Have you experienced that divine 
grace that ignites your heart and causes it to glow so that others can see it and glorify the God who saved you? For those who know true grace, how warm is your heart to the things of God? Are you zealous for good works as a grateful response to the redemption and purification which Christ has given to you by grace? And today I hope we consider that gospel of grace again and our hearts be warmed to praise. Let's end where we began this morning. Why do we do what we do? Because the grace of God has appeared to us and it continues to train us. And it points us with happy hope to the someday second appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserving us in him until then. And I hope that each of us can say amen to that today because we have experienced this grace of God. Let's pray.